This is the Monday Call, brought to you by New Zealand Funds. With high inflation, global trade disruptions, and no immigration to drive growth, New Zealand's economic policymakers are facing the toughest choices in a generation. According to former Finance Minister Ruth Richardson, big changes are needed because, in her words, New Zealand is currently swimming in a shark pool. Richardson joins us to share her views on New Zealand's precarious economic situation. How do new ideas, institutions and individuals combine to drive change? As a nation that depends on free trade, what is New Zealand's place in a deglobalising world? And how do we create education and business opportunities to help New Zealand entrepreneurs thrive? Richardson starts by explaining why she thinks the current reality is far from business as usual. Okay, thanks, James. Well, I started my day, as I always do on a Monday, um, swimming lots and lots of lengths in, in a swimming pool. Uh, and it struck me that the best analogy to describe the now is that New Zealand is swimming in a shark's pool. Uh, we had first the global pandemic. Now we've got a shooting war in Europe. Uh, it's a fraught period of geopolitical realignment. Uh, we've got persistent supply disruptions, we've got financial market volatility, we've got surging inflationary pressures, and limited room for policy manoeuvre. So my first take is this is decidedly not business as usual uh, for central bankers, for policymakers. Uh, we're looking down the barrel of a war session. Uh, so that, that's a very sober place to start, but we, we have to wake up uh, the authorities that, that they cannot uh, continue with what has been uh, a splurge in monetary policy, uh, an ill regard for any sense of, of fiscal discipline, and a failure to look at the policy settings to see if they're fit for purpose. So when... When, when you take a step back and look at some of the, I guess, key metrics that makes you nervous, as, as, it, as it would have done back in the early 90s as well, what are some of the key things that you look at and think, this is not going well, something needs to change, and we have to make some pretty tough decisions? Well, we, we have two elements to that equation. One is policy, the policy settings, and the other is the attitude of, of the politicians, uh, because in, in all, all these things, it takes ideas, it takes institutions, and it takes individuals. So if you look at the idea that's in the ascendancy, it is that government has the answer for everything. So when the pandemic hit, uh, where there was no rule book, as they say, it was full throttle fiscal um, unleashing, uh, same with the institution, our central bank, through all caution to the wind, quantitative easing, uh, modern monetary theory, all this sort of nonsense became uh, the, uh, you know, soup of the day. Uh, and we're left uh, with now a situation where uh, the appropriate response to the pandemic crisis has now become the default setting. The default setting is that you know, monetary policy uh, until very recently was untamed. Uh, fiscal policy was undisciplined. Uh, and we have this idea uh, that the government has uh, the answer to everything. Now, those of us who worried about unhinged monetary policy and undisciplined fiscal policy, we were dismissed as austerity mongers uh, that... Uh, the monetary authorities, the Fed no less, asserted that inflation uh, was just transitory uh, and the practice of fiscal responsibility that was regarded as so unfashionable. So if you have a look at the statistics, you know, just immediate, you know, you've got low unemployment, you know, growth kind of looks uh, okay, you've got mounting debt, uh, but more importantly, a mounting dynamic, and that dynamic does not look good for New Zealand. And it's that dynamic that should worry us. Uh, we've run out of fiscal room. We've run out of monetary room. Uh, we don't uh, apparently uh, have an appetite to undertake the kind of reforms that can restore some dynamic to the New Zealand economy. And all the while, you've got a global situation 
uh, where there are just headwinds wherever you look at them. You know, deglobalization, uh, the supply chain issues are not going to uh, be fixed anytime soon. Uh, you, you've got uh, a, a very, very um, difficult trading environment uh, for New Zealand. Uh, and, you know, we, we need right now um, urgently to have a policy reset. So my short point is it will be very wrong to be complacent uh, about just the short-term statistics. Uh, it's the longer-term dynamic uh, that should worry us. And it's no use now saying preemptive action would have been a good idea. Yes, it would have been. Uh, we've got to deal with the now. Uh, and there is, as yet, I think in New Zealand at large, no realisation uh, that we, we face uh, some very, very tough resets in our policy settings. And we haven't been used to policy reform in this country for 30 years, just like we haven't been used to high inflation for 30 years. Uh, so there's an expression that my kids use, which is get real. It's time for New Zealand to get real about what we need to do uh, to rebuild a dynamic in the New Zealand economy in a world where there is war on the liberal order, uh, where our security uh, arrangements uh, are at risk, and where we're being put to the sword as a country to have to choose, it would seem, uh, between our values and our security settings and our economic imperatives. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. I definitely want to touch on that point a bit later, especially around as finance minister, what, what do you do between security and economics? But before we delve into some of that, you said an interesting point around needing to make tough decisions. And if we look at some of the really recent statistics around consumer confidence, it's 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 coming to all-time lows in, in New Zealand. Do you think that is a reflection of what needs to come? And so the consumer is thinking, we need to change this. Or is it actually, how did we get here? What have we done? And what do we need to do to, how are we going to get out of this mess? Look, I, I think all reform is a matter of leadership, of individuals and ideas. Uh, and what those statistics are telling us, that the country is going in the wrong direction, is that high inflation uh, and prices, particularly interest rates and, and uh, fuel prices uh, and food prices, are really jolting New Zealanders uh, into the realisation that all is not well in our world. So, so that, that's the predominant sentiment. The real issue is whether this prompts the political class uh, to basically go back to governing uh, as opposed to uh, marketing. And going back to governing means that we have to decide uh, what we're prepared to do and to tackle in order, as I say, to, to restore some dynamic uh, to this economy. So the will to reform is now at such a premium. I think the policy strokes are pretty evident. Uh, we have too big a government. We have too high a tax burden. Uh, our regulatory impositions are at odds uh, with the dynamic uh, to invest and to employ. Our education system, which is the stuff of future prosperity, is in dire straits, dire straits. And we've turned off uh, New Zealand to the world in terms of investment flows to this country and immigrants flowing to this country. So I, I think that the policy uh, strokes are pretty evident. And yet, to the extent that the current government is prepared to use its policy capital, you look at something like three waters. Yes, we need to address infrastructure, uh, but effectively to use that as a Trojan horse for an attack on property rights and an assault on democracy is just an outrage. And so the government is burning up any reform capital it might have on causes that are completely uh, off-piste that have no impact at all on whether or not New Zealand can foot it in this new environment, which I describe as, 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 a, as a shark's pool. One argument to hit back at, at things that need to be done from a um, government spending point of view is that at the same time, because of 
I guess, catalyzed by COVID, but even before that, to be honest, I think we, we've had that last gasp now. But when we look at asset price inflation, whether it's being specifically the housing market in New Zealand, but, but also other assets, meaning if you had assets over the last couple of years, your, your wealth has increased enormously. And if you didn't, and then you're suffering from inflation, you know, the, 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 the gap between the rich and the poor has got even greater. How, how do you solve that really difficult issue where some of the things that need to happen do affect people that need the most help? At the same time, if we don't do it, everybody in the end will suffer if we don't really take some strong and hard action versus um, you know government spending. Well, in a measured way, you put your finger on it. Uh, if you look at the last two years, uh, first of all, the housing market was an accident waiting to happen when you've got unleashed monetary policy. It was always going to, to empower uh, those who had. And now you look at inflation in its wake, which is always going to disempower uh, those who have little. Uh, so it's a double attack and it's widened the gap between uh, those who don't have a lot and those who have a lot. Uh, and that's the last thing that we want if we're going to get an environment for you know good good government and, and stable democracy. So what would you do? I mean, the intervention uh, in respect of COVID should have been targeted and temporary, uh, but it decidedly was not targeted and it decidedly was not temporary. I mean, the Reserve Bank is only just starting uh, to turn off uh, the monetary tax. Now, uh, the government's budget this year showed no understanding at all that fiscal policy has got a part to play in this. Uh, so we have untargeted, um, you know, transfer payments to everybody, irrespective of need. Uh, you know, we, we, we can, and the wastage is just, you know, I know these are small things, you know, $350,000 to open uh, the the transmission gully motorway. I mean, that's not quite as bad as the $25 million um, flagpole of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. But it just, you know, it, 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 it's symptomatic uh, of a frame of mind. Uh, so it, for, for my part, I would start, uh, you, you can't talk about tax before you talk about spending. There is so much spending where the government has got itself into corporate welfare, uh, transfer payments, um, you know, in, in investing uh, money in, um, you know, um, vanity projects. Um, you see a lot of them in Auckland, Harbour Bridge, um, bike tracks and, and light rail and whatever. There's just no sense of priorities. If you go on spending in this fashion, taxes are going to go up. Uh, and now that interest rates are going up, uh, the cost of servicing the debt will go up. So it's a terrible trap. You have to rethink, in my view, the role of the government, make it much more targeted to the real responsibilities of the government uh, and reduce the tax burden accordingly. Uh, so that, 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 that's on the, um, if you like, the spending side. Uh, on the equity side, one of the most important things we can do to break inequity is to have a first-class education system. Only 60% of kids go to school full-time. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, our standards are now so poor, we're not going to take the PISA test anymore because the evidence is, is so appalling. Um, we've got three Berlin Wars, health, which is in the process of being reformed, let's see, education completely unreformed, and social transfers. But if you take education, the most powerful uh, instrument of change, the most powerful passport to a better future for our kids is a world-class education system. There is no evidence at all that the country, either side of politics, is seriously interested uh, in, in addressing that issue. So, you know, here, here we go. Uh, we've got some fundamental reform issues uh, that, that lie behind, um, you know, the, the fix to our pretty dismal statistics. So I guess what you're saying in spending is it doesn't have to be targeted at, you, you get this great uh, sound bites of uh, dole bludges and people, you know, not working and, and, and getting benefits and things. But actually, 
uh, having, you know, that's part of the recourse of being able to actually provide people that really need it, you know, a, a, um, some sort of way to get through day to day. But actually, that's not where the spending issues are. The spending issues is is on a concept of much greater um, proportions where they're actually unneeded by anybody in society in, in, in a way, and actually they're vanity projects. And it's not about targeting the social welfare system, which perhaps had to happen um, or not, depending on your views in, in the early 90s. But um, but in, in nowadays, there's actually a lot of other cream that could be easily made more efficient, cut, trapped. Yeah, but, but, but the heart of it, you only have to turn on Radio New Zealand or Red Radio for, for two minutes to hear that the answer to the remedy to every problem is the government should do something about it. And the idea that the government is all wise uh, and all knowing and has the answers is, is patently ludicrous. Uh, so, you know, you, there, are, there are essential roles for the government, you know, to, to run good fiscal policy, to ensure that the central bank uh, has, has a good mandate and is accountable for that mandate. Uh, law and order, uh, defence of the realm, those are sacred roles for the state. The trouble is the state spilled over into many domains uh, where there's just no link between resources and results. And it's not as if New Zealand doesn't have the tools. I mean, in 1989, you know, the Public Finance Act was passed, which allowed us uh, to not only manage and measure public finances in a better fashion, uh, but we decided we've moved from sort of input budgeting to output budgeting. We could focus more on, on outcomes. We've got the tools to have a highly intelligent state in New Zealand. But instead, we've just got a highly bloated state in New Zealand where people give up on the idea of calling for accountability for results. And happiness is just if we pour more money in, in, into, you know, a, a black hole. I mean, but Bill English had, had a very good innovation, was hard, which was the social investment approach in which you, you look seriously at causes of dysfunction and despair and you dealt with it at, at the root causes. Um, but there was no, all the targets were scrapped, social investment approach was scrapped. Uh, you know, we, we, we've got to, that's part of the course correction. We've got to start again on that. And, and do you think the current government, I'm talking about Grant Robinson here, uh, has that ability to be able to think like that? And, and the reason I specifically mention him as he's got this obsession it seems I'm not a political jockey but it's it seems that he is adamant that he has uh, creates a view that labor is good with the economy our debt to GDP is nowhere near as high as it has been in the past our, and there's some argument that actually spending now spending there's lots of different forms of spending and and um, and not all spending is the same, but actually we've got the ability and room in the economy to, to spend because on things like infrastructure and, and projects which help the economy, help growth, and and, and also um, allow us to, to, I guess, move forward um, with, with, an, with an efficient economy compared to perhaps what it was. Unlike, say, the UK, which are you know, much higher debt, much higher budget deficits, um, huge amount of infrastructure spend that needs to be done, and there's no way they're going to even um, get close to being able to achieve those. Uh, are we in a good position that if the spending is done right, it can be done effectively, or or have we got a spending problem despite having a better balance sheet than we did when you took over in the 90s? Well, the mythology is that the current Minister of Finance is all of these things. If I could be unkind, I would say he's fiscally incontinent. Uh, that he doesn't even begin to understand how the moving parts of an economy work. I mean, the government doesn't create any money of its own. It's only created uh, by the private sector. I mean, I, I sit on the board of an infant formula company. If it weren't for the earnings of the agribusiness sector generally, and dairy in particular, we would be in real stock as a country. Even Treasury, which has become much more timid, but which is bound, obviously, to be uh, responsible to the government of the day, even they, in a small voice, say, excuse me, uh, this debt position is not sustainable. I mean, we are not governing for the United Kingdom or the United States. We do not have a reserve currency position. We're a highly vulnerable economy. It only takes one earthquake uh, to be a big wake-up call, let alone a global pandemic, uh, we've got ourselves in a position 
were our balance sheet and our debt are not in the shape that the Minister of Finance would have us believe. Uh, and you know, there's so much of our economy. I mean, I liken the New Zealand economy to a big jumbo jet. There are five million of us in that jet, and it got grounded by COVID. Right? And how do we how do we take off again? We've got two wings that we can fly on. One is what we can produce from the soil and the sea. So that's our agribusiness, our forestry, our fishing industry. That's one wing. And the other are our smarts. You know, what, what, you know we're, we're the zeros uh, of this world. Uh, what are we doing with our uh, intellectual property and our innovation and our smarts? And we can only fly on those two wings. And the Minister of Finance can make all of the noise he or she likes about tweaking here and there. It's not a matter of tweaking. There is too much government uh, bloat and weight on that jumbo jet for us to be able to take off on those two wings. So that, that's, that's probably the analogy uh, that I would make. And, you know, the recent changes to, you know, how we account for, for debt, um, you know, allow um, some resetting of, you know, where we stand and compared to other countries. It's where we stand in terms of what we face as a nation. We are too heavily indebted. We are too substantially taxed. We are over-regulated and we do not pay enough attention to the conditions in which new ideas, investment and employment will occur. I mean, we're still looking at the barrel of fair pay agreements at effectively a sickness insurance regime, uh, all of which are going to be new costs loaded on our earning sector. I just cannot uh, share those priorities. I get no sense uh, that this government understands about what it is uh, that it will take for the New Zealand economy to recover its mojo, uh, because those surveys that show that we think things are going in the wrong direction are bang on, that they're right. Uh, and that's why we need, I think, a pretty substantial rupture uh, with the existing complacency that all we need to do is just throw more money here and there. And, you know, and political panic doesn't help. If you look at the last budget, there was no treasury advice, no, no anything uh, to basically give the, the grounding for the transfer payments that were made. That was all about rescuing a political position rather than rescuing the New Zealand economy. Short-termism is, is something that uh, lots of governments are facing at the moment. That is for sure with this, I guess, the, uh, the, the podium that all governments are standing on day in, day out, what they got used to in COVID, and now they're using that to... I guess, think about other government policy. But I wanted to jump back onto the, excuse the, um, carrying on your metaphor um, around the jumbo jet. I think those two um, wings are really interesting points to delve into. The first one being agriculture. L let's start there. Is that sector going in the right direction at the moment? What, what needs to happen to um, allow that sector to continue to flourish when you've got all these other burdens affecting it, mostly around decarbonisation, and 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 what what can we do to because yeah. it, it did did I agree with you it did save the New Zealand economy um, during COVID and and what what do we do about it now to continue that success out of COVID? I think there is a real vibrancy in the agricultural sector. I think I've used the term you know the the. New Zealand needs to recover its, its economic mojo. I think the agricultural sector has really seen that it's written to the rescue. Uh, and it's not just dairy or sheep and beef. I mean, the horticultural sector, the aquaculture sector, uh, you know, they, they are very much now um, seeking to be on the front foot. They've got amazing uh, trading conditions and there's a lot of thought uh, being given to the next generation of production. How can we produce food and fibre at the premium end of the scale in a way that's good for the planet. And those, those discussions are now just woven in uh, to the fabric of, you know, New Zealand agribusiness uh, and aquacultural thinking. You know, I, I know when, when you go in market that uh, being able to show that it's a zero carbon shoe, for example, for all birds, uh, or that you're um, beef is, is zero carbon, that, that is a market demand. It, it, it's not a nice to have for the, for the planet. It's a must have for our trading partners. And I think that our agricultural sector is having, um, you know, serious conversations, um, taking ownership uh, of these issues. 
what 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 they don't want uh, is you know new um, cost of doing business uh, imposed by the government, new regulatory uh, controls, um, and so issues like three waters uh, are playing very badly with the agricultural sector because you know that they can see that's the pattern of you know government knows best, property rights can be seized. Uh, normal democratic arrangements, uh, particularly in the provinces, can be overridden. Uh, th- th- those things are playing extremely badly. Uh, so, you know, Groundswell, for example, has, has got a big head of steam on account of those issues. But on the economic front, um, the uh, Heiwaka Ekanoa uh, initiative by the um, dairy and, and, and beef and sheep sector to address uh, how we live within planetary limits and produce within planetary limits, uh, that's gone very well. Uh, the plant-based alternatives uh, are now being prosecuted uh, in a very innovative way in the agricultural sector. So I think generally uh, agribusiness is in good shape. There's always a tension there, isn't there, Ruth, between government policy sort of, I guess, the carrot and the stick. You need initially some government policy to sometimes get things like decarbonisation going. But now the market, like the Allbirds example is a great one, of now the market's demanding it, you almost need government to step back a bit and, and let people get on with it because the consumer demands it and so it happens naturally. Is, is that how government policy should run Where in agriculture where you, you need some things to change and then once it gets momentum you, you step back? Is that how you see it or you don't need it at all and the market decides? Well, no, I mean, the, the, the role of the government is always to set the rules of the game. I mean, we, the, the Prime Minister is now caught a plane to argue, among other things, uh, for our security in a NATO forum and for our economic security uh, in a trade agreement with Europe. All of New Zealand has to applaud that. Those have to be the priorities of a Prime Minister for this country. You know, open markets... Um, security pacts with those uh, with whom we share fundamental values. Uh, that those those are, are, are critical um, leadership uh, initiatives that we want from a government. But the idea that the government should intervene all over the place and not trust uh, a sector or um, private enterprise to get on with business uh, is is you know overreach. Uh, and, you know, we become used, as I say, one of the worst things about dealing with the pandemic is that there is sort of a thinking in lots of body politics, not just in New Zealand, uh, that the era of big government is back. Well, it, it's only when we get, you know, uh, up against, you know, a very difficult wall that we have to again uh, learn the lessons that that is not the case. If you were Jacinda Ardern flying to Europe at the moment. This, it's a real hard one because you, you want to sign some sort of deal with Europe and that really helps the agriculture sector. At the same time, if if the deal's not quite as as strong as you you would have liked, um, you probably, uh, a, a, according to uh, f- one of National's former trade ministers who you know is really experienced in this, you sort of form a precedent for your other negotiations that you're having. Does she just need to sign a deal with Europe because it's never going to be that great because Europe's so protectionism has so much protectionism? I, I heard that argument from uh, Todd McClay this morning, and, and I, I don't agree. New Zealand has to basically um, clutch at every trade store we can find. It's it's not always going to be perfect, uh, and we're never going to get a hundred percent. We just have to keep pushing down uh, that track, and it, and it was was. For me, um, a, a seminal moment where the then Labour government in opposition campaigned against TPP in the first six weeks of taking office, to their real credit, uh, the Department of, uh, you know, MFAT and, and Treasury took them behind the bike sheds and said, look here, you know, free trade is what makes this country tick. And within, you know, you know, a matter of months, we had been at the forefront of, of uh, redesigning TPP and, and signing it. So any trade wherever and however we can get it, uh, I think has to be the mantra of a New Zealand government of whatever strike. I, I want to touch on technology in a second, the other wing of the of the jumbo jet. But while we're here on, on trade, how do you balance that really difficult decision you've got to make as a New Zealand society and government between 
security and NATO and the US and and China and their and their might around trade, but also what's going on in the South China Sea and 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 their and their you know quote unquote overreach around this part of the world. You know what is more important in the end, and how do, how how does one balance those two predicaments? Well, that's become a far more difficult aspect of the shark's pool. I mean, I work a lot in China and with Chinese colleagues, uh, and you've got to say that the New Zealand initiative that gave them the three firsts. I mean, we sponsored them into the World Trade Organization. We were the first country in the world to sign a free trade agreement uh, with China. Uh, Those initiatives by the governments of of all stripes of the time uh, have been hugely instrumental in New Zealand's current uh, standard of living. Uh, But global affairs, geopolitics does not stand still. And if you look at the last... Uh, six months even. I mean, the idea that Sweden and Finland that would sign up to join NATO is is just, I mean, it's unprecedented that Germany should abandon her decades long, you know, no defence spending, no defence cooperation, should abandon that overnight and rush to Ukraine's aid. Uh, that China should, you know, Deng is, is the leader I like the most in China, uh, he was the one that opened up the economy uh, and unleashed uh, the the dynamic of market capitalism in China. And he said, you know, hide your light and bide your time. Uh, well, Xi, it would seem, doesn't want to bide his time. He wants to be emperor forever and not respect the time limit uh, on two terms for a, a Chinese uh, premier or prime minister, president. And he doesn't want to hide his light. And so the issue of economic cooperation in the Pacific, uh, which you know New Zealand, Australia, China, you know, have done for for decades, you've now got uh, a perilous um, stepping into a red line, which is uh, let's install defence establishments and train your local police. Well, we know how that turned out in Hong Kong. Uh, which China only had to bide its time until uh, 2049, uh, 2149 to effectively uh, reabsorb Hong Kong, but they wouldn't bide their time on that score. And now it would seem uh, their recent declaration that the Strait of Taiwan is no longer international waters uh, and that the Pacific is fair security game should, should really have us on red alert. Uh, and and that's that's a very painful uh, realization for New Zealand. I mean, we have prosecuted a wonderful trading relationship with China and with Chinese people. It's been two way street. You know, a lot of the dairy industry in New Zealand is owned uh, by Chinese entities, uh, and the market for us in China has just been phenomenal. Uh, it's been very good for their consumers and very good for New Zealanders' back pockets. Uh, so it's a relationship that's been very important for us. But the more that uh, the, the values and the security issues are impinged, the more New Zealand is going to have to make, you know, a very cold light of day calculation about finally where our interest lies. And most of the previous um, politicians have never had to face uh, that that kind of dilemma, uh, and I think that that uh, the prime minister is picking her way through that very carefully indeed, as she should. She should deploy her formidable communication skills uh, in that sphere more than than any other. Which is why being at NATO uh, is a real feather in cap uh, for New Zealand. Uh, why it's important for us to say our values and our security uh, are not. Uh, for sale at any price. I think that last point is is key for all of us to decide, isn't it? And it's it's going to be uh, more and more determinant on on perhaps um, which journey we want to go on. If if there's a clear delineation between let's you know national labour on that policy, but it actually seems perhaps one of the few policies that actually there's pretty pretty. Yeah. 
a lot of commonality because it's such a difficult one. It needs to be a country first type of decision. Is that fair, or do you think there's quite a difference? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah so I don't think there's a political party political divide on that, uh, but there is a divide between total pragmatism. We'll trade with any comers in principle, and you know you hope that that with trade, you know, principle and, and pragmatism can um, sleep in the in the same bed. I mean, you know. China swims in her lane, the West swims in its lane. The question is, can you swim in a third lane happily together? New Zealand's been able to do that. Uh, Australia hasn't. Uh, and I think the fear for policymakers is uh, if New Zealand were to suffer a kind of uh, Australian-type boycott, uh, then we're very exposed. We've been exposed once before in our history, which is when Britain had a love affair with Europe and joined the European Union. And we, we really had to then look how we diversified our risk. So it's a risk assessment, uh, and it's very important now for all New Zealand traders, particularly on the soil and sea side and the smart side, to diversify the risk and become heavily involved in other markets, uh, other economies, other sectors uh, that are not just so one country, one product centric. Yeah, ending our love affair with with Britain um, did create one of the most efficient farming regimes in in the world, and I guess that is a that's a really good point about diversification into other markets like technology. What what is the state of the New Zealand technology market? Because we have the notwithstanding your comments about education and and you know there wouldn't, wouldn't be many people that would disagree with what you're saying there but we are an educated society we have some amazing entrepreneurs um, zero is is the example that everybody talks about but how do you, how do you get a hundred more zeros and in, into the economy and how do how do we I guess generate more wealth and and um, a diversification of our economy into technology <laughs> Well, you, you, you want a mix of ideas and, and individuals. You know, the idea that you can have a, a world-class biotech um, uh, idea or um, business here in New Zealand uh, or a, a world-class um, AI business in New Zealand or a world-class, you know, plant-based alternative to food in New Zealand because all, all of those are, are high-tech propositions. So you have to have the idea and then you have to have the individuals who are willing to prosecute them uh, which is why closing off the door to immigration makes absolutely no sense at all. People of ideas have to be able to travel, uh, and there's no knowing that your plant-based engineer is necessarily going to be a New Zealand-educated individual. Uh, you know, they, they might come out of uh, Kiev, for all we know. Uh, so we've, we've got to have, you know, an opening up of capital into New Zealand, people into New Zealand, ideas being able to prosper here and then become globally great uh, from a New Zealand base. So it, it's as much a, a frame of, of mind as well as, as a policy setting. You know, there are a lot of um, entrepreneurs who will look now at the New Zealand tax system uh, and say, why should we ply our trade out of Auckland uh, when Singapore uh, or, you know, San Diego uh, look a much better proposition or, or Sydney uh, and, you know, the great sucking stone from across the ditch is something we have to worry about, not just for nurses, uh, but for entrepreneurs as well. Uh, so there are, the entrepreneurs are still few and far between. We need more critical mass. Uh, we, we need the idea that you can go skiing in, in uh, Cardona or Queenstown for, for the weekend uh, and run your, your biotech um, bizzo in, in Auckland during the week. Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> as as um, you mentioned tax there, but what what are some what are some things that government can do to to promote sort of innovation productivity? It, because it's not just a tax thing, is it? it it's it's giving the opportunity to, uh, uh, I guess foster and support these companies and entrepreneurship. And you mentioned immigration as one of them. Um, is, is, there, is, there, is there an easy low-hanging fruit list of things that a government can do? Yeah, um, I, I chaired for a long time uh, an organisation called KiwiNet, which was a consortium of most of the country's crown research institutes and universities. 
and it was about commercializing our smarts. So you get an organization like Plant and Food, which is the preeminent uh, Crown Research Institute, and incidentally, the government now wants to mess with their commercial focus, you know, which gave us the golden kiwi fruit, which has been, you know, about low-hanging fruit. Yeah, just a fantastic earner for New Zealand, as well as for the, for the Plant and Food uh, Crown Research Institute. Uh, so commercialising our smarts, you know, there is a lot of amazing work being done uh, in, uh, in those institutions that, that it's it just, you know, like Peter Jackson movies. It doesn't make the movie. It just lies on the cutting floor. You know, there is nothing in the system uh, that creates an environment in which people might think about commercialising those ideas. So we need to create a better, uh, I suppose, pond uh, in which, you know, the, the, the frogs can believe that they can become princes if they're kissed. And it's not just kissed by government money. Uh, it, it is, you know, like-minded individuals can see an idea uh, and are prepared to put in the hard yards to commercialise it. So we saw this is a very different example. In the Paralympics, you saw that most amazing uh, ski seat uh, that two engineers at the University of Canterbury engineered over a year for the guy that won the gold medal. I mean, it was just like a piece of, of NASA art. It was amazing. You know, that's just a sign of the capability of the idea uh, that came from those two women who were, who were engineers at the University of Canterbury Engineering School uh, who worked with the athlete and produced a world-class product. Now, we're able to do that on a huge range of fronts. But if you look at the way in which both funding and reward work in the Crown Research Institutes and the universities, there's not a lot of incentive for bright individuals to take that next step. Yeah, well, when you, when you look at university rankings, and it's all based on global university rankings, it's all based on how much money is pumped into the actual research part of the university. And and we don't sit highly on, on that in that regard because, the, the, you know, the research budgets for things like that is just nowhere near some of our, I guess, close partners. You know, US is a special case perhaps, but Australia, we're still far down from there. It, it's really having the idea of, of, you know, collaboration because, you know, the, the person who's the originator of the idea won't always be the best entrepreneur uh, to put it into practice. I don't think the problem with New Zealand is the lack of capital. I think the capital is there. You know, there are a lot of venture funds, angel funds. Um, you know, I can think of two or three recent um, innovative enterprises that have got, you know, 20 million plus uh, of funding. I, I chaired a, uh, an organisation called SIF that did come out of the University of Canterbury uh, chemistry department that recently raised over 22 million uh, for the next phase of their uh, development into uh, pharmaceuticals as opposed to uh, the um, silicon chip making business. You know, so SIFT is, is going uh, great guns. Uh, but, you know, I can think of, of three enterprises, uh, one biotech, one plant-based alternative and, and SIFT that have recently raised on the domestic and international markets over $20 million for, you know, establishing a, a commercial plant. So it can be done. But you, you just have to have those, those drivers uh, there that are willing to take the idea that's capable of being commercialised and then have all create the whole of that channel so you can go through from idea to execution. Uh, and, and, and that becomes a way of life. It's a way of life if you're in and around Cambridge. It's a way of life if you're in and, in and around Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's not enough a way of a life if you're around University of Auckland or University of Canterbury, say. And we've got the smarts. We just need to somehow take advantage of it. And I, and I totally agree. And it's exciting when you talk about some of these ideas and, and to make it a, a whole sector in itself and, and like you say, diversify ourselves. So we're not just sending milk powder overseas, but we're sending technology and, and, and lots, of, lots of other different types of value-added things as well. Ruth, I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I wanted to, for the last few minutes, just do a bit of reflecting um, and, I, and I think it's especially pertinent now when you think about the, the globalization of the world economy is, is somewhat at risk, whether it's political, whether it's COVID-induced, whether it's um, some of the geopolitical tensions. But, but it's incredibly important, like you've mentioned a couple of times this morning, uh, for New Zealand's economy. 
and the way that we got there was a lot of the reforms in the in the mother of all budgets in the in the in the in the early nineties. How do you reflect on that um, now and and some of the things that were implemented and 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 what are your thoughts? What would you have done differently and and what would you do now in in the same manner as what happened um, back then? Well, if you look, I mean, I I got into politics in the early eighties. We, we was I was involved with some fantastic game changing things like the Official Information Act was the first. Uh, really uh, policy-making initiative that I was involved with. We were a select committee. We had a majority of one. Maldon didn't much like the idea, but Mike Minogue and Paul East crew, we, we did, and, and we went for it. Um, so if, if you look uh, at that time, it became very evident to me that New Zealand was going to be effectively marooned. We were sporotic. We were not competitive. We were not outward-looking. We'd become addicted to spending and, and subsidy. Uh, and I was all for, you know, the, the idea at the centre of this was that we ought to have openness, choice, market freedom, um, in other words, to uh, reinvigorate the New Zealand uh, economy and society with the idea that um, choices uh, and markets would work. So there were three really important things that happened in 1989 which was the year before I became the Minister of Finance. We passed the Public Finance Act, which effectively put New Zealand, the, the conduct of New Zealand's public finances. The result was, was you know, we looked were terrible. We were you know, spending what we didn't have, et cetera. We'd had, uh, been in deficit for as long as, as I'd been in adulthood. Uh, but the apparatus was put in place that allowed for transparency and accountability and discipline around public finances. Uh, the internet was formed uh, in uh, 1989. Uh, yeah, 1989. Uh, so that transformed the world of knowledge, and the Berlin Wall fell. So those those three events, and most people wouldn't put the Public Finance Act there. They effectively transformed the world in which I was able to be, you know, uh, the the job of the Minister of Finance is to be the Minister of Reform. Uh, it was a wonderful climate. Uh, in which to take advantage of the new technology and the new openness, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the embrace of markets, uh, you know, the commanding heights of the state uh, were being uh, assailed uh, and there were real successes to be had for countries that went down this more open market style route. So in that sense, I, I wouldn't change a thing, but I, I don't want to be accused of hubris either. Um, it was necessary, but not sufficient. You know, we saved New Zealand from a much worse fate. Uh, we gave ourselves a chance. We made us less vulnerable. We addressed the more obvious risks to the country. Uh, but that's all by way of necessary but not sufficient. Here we are now, 2022. Uh, it's a platform you know, of fiscal responsibility and monetary responsibility. Those macro imperatives don't change. Uh, but we're now in an environment where we face, you know, many more geopolitical trading uh, challenges, uh, where again, we have to look at what it is that's going to help be the game changer for us. Uh, and in my time, I knew what the game changers were. They were monetary and uh, responsibility, and fiscal responsibility, uh, labour market reform, uh, and effectively right-sizing the state. Now, now the game changes uh, require, you know, a, a different set of reforms. Uh, so rust never sleeps, reform never sleeps. Uh, so the different set of reforms in the platform now are much more about powering up uh, our economy, powering up uh, New Zealanders to be equipped uh, to, you know, produce premium style products and services uh, in a world where it's increasingly difficult to rely on traditional trading routes. Uh, and all the while, we have to address the vulnerability now of a stock of high debt. And we've got the, the, the headache of, of getting rid of inflation because the right choices weren't made at the right time. So, you know, hard landing, soft landing, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's a line call. All the evidence would say that, you know, there is there's going to be uh, an, an abrupt um, if, if you like, reckoning 
uh, and, and a reset of our economy, not going to be easy, but that means even more that there's a premium on high quality reform in this country. So business as usual won't cut it. Uh, we need politicians who've got a new reform edge because that's what New Zealand absolutely needs. I think when I reflect on what you're just saying, whether you agreed with your, one agrees with your reforms or not, the fact of the matter is you had an ideology and you weren't afraid to implement it at the perhaps the cost of your popularity as a politician. And, and what we're facing now, and I'm not just talking about right now, I'm talking about all governments over the past, I don't know, what is it, let's say 10 years, is, is populism and, and therefore people's inability uh, to want to make those tough decisions, even if it's not politically... Um, astute for them to do it. Is that a fair summary? Because it, there just doesn't seem to be the political willpower on either side to make any changes. Well, MMP has baked in uh, a sense of, of compromise. I mean, that's what it involves. And if you're compromising around what are inherently and fundamentally good policy positions and good performance, then, you know, that, that's, that's what, what you can live with. But when you've got fundamental assaults on your ability to trade, uh, when you've got inflation now uh, on the prowl again, uh, then that kind of, you know, let's go for the lowest common denominator won't cut it. And and I hate to have to to basically say, is it again going to take a sense of crisis for us to come to our senses? It shouldn't. We should have learnt those lessons. So the central banks are now starting uh, to basically up the ante uh, and lean against inflationary pressures as they should have from the outset. Uh, I think the realisation is there uh, that you just can't go on spending like a drunken sailor and hope uh, all will be well. Uh, I think that the trade headwinds and and the geopolitics now are telling decision makers uh, we we have to be much more proactive in this environment. Early signs um, appearing at NATO to me is is, is a very good early sign because uh, it won't be popular in all quarters uh, that the government is prepared to step up to their responsibility. Uh, I, I'm I'm an optimist. Uh, I think that New Zealanders um, uh, are showing whether we've got a New Zealand captain and coach of the New Zealand uh, in the uh, New Zealand in the English cricket team so it's a lot of it, it's, it's attitude what is it we want to achieve and are we prepared uh, to be you know pr- pretty pretty bold uh, and pretty proactive in our thinking and, and I would like to hope that you know as we contemplate a war session which may well be the world's fate uh, that you know, New Zealanders won't just say we think the country is going in the wrong direction. They'll be prepared to applaud, you know, policies and politicians who are uh, willing to stake out um, what course correction looks like uh, and willing to take the kind of, of lead that you expect uh, from governments. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme. NZ Funds Manage Superannuation Service, NZ Funds Advice Portfolio Service, NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as constituting financial advice. Thank you.